The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. We've spent the last several weeks looking at the crucifixion of Christ. And this morning we're going to be looking at His burial. Now, let me begin by asking you a question. Is the burial of Christ significant? And if so, why? Well, the answer is yes, it is significant. Why is it significant? Why is the burial important? Part of the Gospel, right? Look what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4. Now, I cut out verse 2 here, okay? So it will all fit on, I don't want to be accused of, you know, manipulating things. <laughs> it's just that I'm not, I don't need that verse, and so I t- cut it out so it all fit on one screen. So, uh, now I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel preached to you, which you received, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture. In other words, His death was just the way the Scripture would said it would be. We're going to look at that some more this morning. That He was buried... And then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture. So there we have the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Now typically when we refer to the Gospel, we talk about the death and resurrection. But under inspiration here, Paul includes the burial as part of the Gospel. And I think it's obvious with his inclusion and the details by all the Gospel writers that there's more significance in the burial of Christ than simply placing the body in the grave. See, Christ's burial assures us of the good news of His death. And that's basically what the burial is. The burial is a death certificate. It's saying He was dead, and that's where the good news comes from. Now, we've been following Yeshua's life through the book of John. We've seen three and a half years of His life. We saw Him call His disciples. We saw Him begin His ministry. We've seen Him confront the religious leaders of Israel. We've seen Him cast out demons, raise the dead, heal the sick, feed the multitudes. We've heard Him teach about eternal life, about the resurrection, about the end of the age. We've seen His actually six different trials before Israel's leaders and before Rome. And then we've seen Him whipped to the point of just about death and then crucified. So where we ended last week, Yeshua is now dead. Now, think about how that must have affected His disciples. Okay, They have followed Him for three and a half years, left their home, left their jobs, banking everything on this is the Messiah. He's going to take over. He's going to defeat Rome. He's going to usher in the kingdom. And they're excited because they're really clueless as to who He really was and what He was really doing. So think about their despair now. The one they put their hope in, who they felt was the Messiah, is dead. That's a cause of great despair for them. But I want you to see this morning that it's a cause of great joy for us who know the end of the story. Okay? They they hadn't read the Gospels, okay? So they didn't know what was going to happen next. We do. So we're like, what's wrong with these guys? Well, they hadn't read the story yet, all right? We ended last week with verse 30. When Yeshua had received the sour wine, He said, it is finished. Now this translates a single Greek word, tetelestai, which actually is a banking term that means paid in full. So Christ's cry from the cross could legitimately be translated as, it is completely paid. People, do you understand the significance of that? It's done. How much do you have to add to this? What do you have to contribute? Nothing. It's paid in full. When He died on the cross, He paid it all. He paid it in full. Now the the Catholics teach that Christ died on the cross for your sins. But, you have to do this and this because what He did just wasn't quite enough. That is a slap in the face to Christ, to the finished work of Christ. He paid it all. And it's not just the Catholics. Most Christians teach, well, you ought to do Religion says do. Christianity says done. It's 
It's finished. He paid it all. Every bit of it. And we have to understand that fact if we're going to live a victorious Christian life. Then he says, he bowed his head and he gave up the Spirit. You know what's happening here? He's literally willing his own death. He left his body at exactly the time appointed by the Father. In other words, what John wants us to see here is he's in sovereign control of the time he died. And he said over and over, you don't take my life, I lay it down willingly. He is doing that right here. You know, from the time of his birth, men have tried to kill him. It started right after his birth. In Matthew chapter 2, remember Herod sent out, we gotta, we, he wanted to kill him, so let's kill all the babies two and under, we want to make sure we get them. When Christ began his ministry, he went back to Nazareth and preached one sermon in his hometown. They tried to throw him off a cliff. Chapter 5, it says, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. In the seventh chapter, it says, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Chapter 8, verse 37, he said, you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Verse 40, it says, but as it is, you're seeking to kill me. Verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him. Chapter 10, verse 30, the Jews again picked up stones to stone him. Chapter 11, verse 53, from that day forward they planned together to kill him. They wanted Yeshua dead. And they tried many times and they failed many times. Because God had a sovereign plan that His Son was to die on Pentecost. I'm sorry, on Passover. got my P's confused. I didn't see any corrections out there. You people are sleeping? I was just checking. (laughs) On Passover, he was to die on Passover. He was the Passover lamb. He was put to death, died the same time the lambs were put to death. All right? That was God's sovereign plan, and that is when he died. He was in control, and that's what John wants us to see. Now, Mark's gospel adds this that happened after he died. Mark says, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now Matthew and Luke, they join Mark in mentioning the torn veil. John doesn't mention it. The writer of Hebrews even mentions it. You know, there's a lot of theology involved here. There's, of course, a lot of differences of opinions on what this actually means. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that there was a great double veil, each measuring 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and as thick as a man's hand. That's a pretty thick veil. There was an opening at one end which allowed you to walk between the veils and come out the other end into the Holy of Holies. This was the innermost sanctum. It was the place where no Jew was permitted to go. Not even the priest could go there except for the high priest once a year on Yom Kippur. He would enter into the veil and offer the blood there. Now, that used to be the place where the Ark of the Covenant was. It wasn't there at this time. It hadn't been there for a long time. hadn't been there since uh, the Babylonians attacked the temple. Some people think that the Babylonians took it. I don't think so. I think the Jews hid it. Anyway, it's gone. And the Lord says in Jeremiah, it'll never come to mind, be remembered again. We don't need it. It's gone, okay? But it was a place where God resided. And where it once stood, there's nothing in there. So when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, it's empty. The throne of God was no longer there. Again, in Ezekiel chapter 10, we see the glory leaving the temple because of their sin. So the rending of the veil, I think, symbolized that because of Yeshua's death on the cross, God no longer dwelt in temples, but now He dwelt in the hearts of His people. That is done. That that system is over. It is ended He's not dwelling there. We don't need to take a sacrifice and we don't need to go there because God is with us. He dwells in us. It meant that God was ushering in the new covenant and He would complete everything the old covenant temple had represented and prophesied. Mark also tells us, and when the centurion who stood facing Him saw in this way, he breathed his last and said, truly this man was the Son of God. There was something about the way that Yeshua died. There's something about that time on the cross, His actions and the way He died, that really affected those who stood by. I mean, a Roman soldier 
This guy had done this. This was his job, crucifixion. Rome crucified a lot of people. And he had witnessed countless, of, countless numbers of people put to death this way. But he's compelled here to acknowledge this, this is something different. This is the Son of God. Luke tells us that he was praising God. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly, this man was innocent. So it wasn't just the soldier. He was definitely affected by this. But there was also a convicted criminal who just a short time before was mocking and making fun of Yeshua. Now he pentantly asked to be remembered when the Lord comes into his kingdom. There was also a man we're going to meet in a little bit, a timid member of the Sanhedrin, who was fearful of others knowing that he was a Christian. And now he has the courage to go to Pilate and ask for the body of Yeshua. There was something about the way that Yeshua died that really had an effect on all those who were around there. Now let's continue on in John's Gospel now. Verses 31 through 37 are unique to John's Gospel. The other Gospels don't mention these accounts. Verse 31 says, Since it was a day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and then they might be taken away. All right, it was the preparation day. Now, People, there's a lot of discussion on this, okay, a lot of disagreement on this. Preparation day was the day before the Sabbath, all right? And they wanted the bodies down. They didn't want the bodies on the cross on the Sabbath. D.A. Carson, along with most Christians, believed that Yeshua was crucified on a Friday, which would have meant Saturday was the Sabbath, and that's how they believe it goes. I believe that Yeshua was crucified on a Wednesday. And so the Sabbath here talked about is not the weekly Sabbath. Okay, you had Passover on the 14th of Nisan. On the 15th of Nisan started the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the last day of the seven-day feast were Sabbaths. So I think the Sabbath being referred to here is the Sabbath of the first day of Unleavened Bread. All right, now we can argue about that and you can have your opinions on that and, and that's what they are, opinions. that We're all, you know taking our best shot at this, but uh, that's not really the important thing here. The, the, the Passover was the day of preparation. You're preparing for Sabbath because you can't do anything on the Sabbath, all right? The Lord has died on the day of preparation. It's Passover. He's died this day, and they want to get Him off the cross and in the tomb before the Sabbath starts at sundown, all right? It says, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Now, this would be sad or comical if it wasn't so sad. Okay, what's going on here? All right. First of all, the Jews. It's not like everybody in Jerusalem came out and said, hey, could you get them off the cross? The Jews here means the Jewish leaders. All right, that's what he's talking about. All right. The people who had just caused their Jewish Messiah to be put to death, who had just had the Savior crucified, they're the ones that come and say, hey, we need to get him off that cross and in the tomb because we don't want to ruin our Sabbath. These murderers, these Christ-haters, these people who have violated all kinds of laws and all kinds of biblical principles are worried about breaking the Sabbath. And they're talking here about the, the, uh, a passage in the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 21, 22-23. says, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he's put to death. Okay, get that. He did a crime. He's put to death. And you hang him on a tree. This is after his death. Okay? This is more just a public display. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. Sun, the next day starts at sundown, not like ours, so they want to get him off that pole and into the ground. Um, this... From the best we can understand, this refers to impalement of the body on a pole after death. The Jews would do this. Now, according to Josephus, this law was interpreted in the first century to cover the bodies of those who were crucified. This is not talking about crucifixion. Nobody crucified at this point in time when this was written. But nowadays, in the first century, they use this text and they say, well, this covered, crucifixion would be covered under this. So they wanted to get him off the cross and in the tomb. Now, 
it wasn't unusual for those executed to remain on the cross for days. Like I said, I think the, the greatest record is they say nine days someone lasted on the cross. If you can even fathom that, I can't, I, I can't fathom that myself. But Rome, once they died, Rome wouldn't take them off the cross. Rome just left them there, okay? To let the birds eat them, to let the animals feast on them. Because Rome did this as a, a thing to terrify people of the power of Rome. So, I mean, you're walking down the street and they put these crew. These crosses right on the side of the road so you couldn't help but see them when you walk by. And another thing, you know, we often see the picture and it's like the cross. He's way up there on the cross. That's no. They, they didn't do that. Their feet would just be a couple feet off the ground. All right? They were right there in your face so it could be seen. Rome wanted its power known to everybody. So they just, they just let them eat them. But see, the Jews wanted them down and so... You know, the, I think Jeff's question was last week, why would Pilate go along with them and let them take him off there? Because Pilate had several run-ins with the Jews, okay? And they would, the Jews would go to Rome and cry, and then Pilate get in trouble, okay? And so he was on shaky ground anyway, so he's like, and usually the Jews did accommodate the Jews. If, if their customs, if their beliefs were unobjectable, in other words, if they could get along with this, you know, when they demanded them to be taken down from the cross, you know, to protect their Sabbath, the Romans would go along with that. So allowing for these sensibilities, Pilate gave the order to hasten the death of the three. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with them. Rome, they had a heavy metal hammer that they would use and smash the victim's legs, the shins. All right, with this hammer, just it would literally just shatter it. Not break it, but shatter it. And the reason for this is the whole time they're on the cross, they have to move up and down in order to breathe because they're hanging in such a position that they cannot exhale. And so most of the crosses would have a little box like where they put their feet so they could push up. And you think that was nice of them. No, it was just to prolong their agony. That's why they put that there. So by smashing the legs, they could no longer push up to exhale and they would die sooner. So that was the way of getting rid of them. Now, Archaeologists have found remains of victims who had been crucified in Israel and their legs were smashed because they're coming up to a Sabbath. They got to get them off the cross, so they hastened the death, which they didn't want to do. Like I said, they wanted them to just suffer as long as possible. Well, Yeshua's in the middle of these guys, and it's interesting. They do one and then they go to the other and they kind of skip them. And they're like, what's that about? Like I said, there's something happening here. These people know something's going on. This is not an ordinary man, okay? And so the next verse says, but when they came to Yeshua, they saw that he was already dead. They didn't break his legs. Now, the Bible tells us that Yeshua suffered on the cross for six hours. From the third hour to the ninth hour, which would be 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. It was really unusual for somebody to die that soon. And so when the Roman soldiers come to Yeshua, they recognize he's dead. Now, remember, this is their job, okay? Uh, this is what they did for a living. They crucified people. They were veterans. They could spot death. They knew, well, his arms aren't twitching anymore. His legs aren't twitching. His head is slumped down. They knew he's dead. Now, the fact that these executioners didn't break Yeshua's legs is really amazing to me because they were ordered to do so by Pilate. Okay? And when you messed up in the Roman army, you died, okay? They were told to do it. They should have done it. Even if they thought he was dead, you think they would have broken his legs just to cover their bases. Well, he's dead. Let's break his legs. Pilate said break his legs. I'm not getting in trouble. Me neither. Let's do it. All right? Listen, you know why they didn't break his legs? They didn't break his legs because they couldn't break his legs. Because God had prophesied, not a bone of him shall be broken. Think about that. We'll talk about that more in a second here. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. Now, the limited evidence we have suggests that soldiers would sometimes pierce these people just to check and make sure they're dead. This was, Christ wasn't the only one. There's evidence that there were others that they jammed this spear in to make sure they're dead. So one of the soldiers must have said, well, we're not going to break his legs. Let me just make sure. You know, I don't want to get in trouble over this. So he jams the spear into him. Now, and it says, John says, out came blood and water. 
Man, there has been so much ink spilled on this blood and water idea and what it means and, you know, all kinds of mystical, fanciful things went on with it. But um, what is the significance thing? Well, Dr. William Edwards, in an article published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, wrote this. He says, clearly the weight of historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was inflicted and supports a traditional view that the spear thrust between his right ribs probably perforated not only the right lung, but also the pericardium and the heart, and thereby ensured his death. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with the modern medical knowledge. He's just trying to stress the fact that, you know, John is saying here he was dead. And however the medical experts want to work out, and there's a lot of different opinions, believe me, I've read a bunch of them, you know, his heart exploded, and then one guy went into great detail to try to show this is a thing that can happen, and all this stuff. We don't have to explain all this. It could be the only time this ever happened in anybody's life, because Christ's a little bit unusual. I think you all know that, all right? He's the Son of God. What's going on here is Lazarus is trying to make us understand, beyond a doubt, he's dead. That's his point. He's dead, all right? He wants us to know that. And the church has found all kinds of symbolic meanings from the blood and water. What do you think is the most frequent thing brought up here, blood and water? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. I mean, from the earliest, I think from the third century, some of the church followed, oh, this is, this is a reference to... And I'm like... <laughs> I don't know how you would get that out of the text, Okay. I mean, okay, if you want to say that, I, you know, it's very mystical. I don't know. It doesn't come. From, it's a stretch to me. All right. I think John probably does have double meaning. John has double meanings all through this. We've seen that through this whole book. All right. But I think if anything, he's pointing to the fact that Christ is the Passover lamb. The blood of the Passover lamb was spilled. And we see this in First uh, John 1, 7. He says, but if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Yeshua's Son cleanses us from all sin. So he's talking about the blood here. The blood is for cleansing, all right, from the sin. Now, later references to sacrificial procedures in the Mishnah appear to support this. Uh, the Mishnah Peshachim 5.3 and 5.5 state that the blood of the sacrificial animal should not be allowed to congeal, but should flow forth freely at the instant of death, so that it could be used for sprinkling. And Mishnah Tamid 4.2 actually specifies that the priest is to pierce the heart of the sacrificial victim and cause the blood to come out. So this idea of blood is the cleansing of the Passover lamb. Now, when it comes to water, if John has a double meaning here, I think he's using water as symbolic of the Holy Spirit. You know, he's talked about that here. The, the Holy, and he said, you know, through this gospel, John 7.39, that the Holy Spirit would be given when Christ was glorified. Well, okay, he's dead. So this might be what he's talking about here. What's interesting, and something I, you know, makes sense to me, is some equate the water to the supernatural water that flowed out of the rock with the children of Israel in the wilderness. Remember the story? Numbers 21.11? Moses takes the rod and strikes the rock. Well, who is the rock? Christ, all right? I mean, Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 10. Christ is the rock that followed the children of Israel. So here we have Moses striking, smiting the rock, and out comes water that provides for the children of Israel in a physical way. Well, here we have water coming out to provide spiritual life to the new Israel, the church of God. So I can make that connection because I think Paul does. He was the rock. The rock was smitten. The water came out of the rock that was smitten. All right. Uh, 19 verse 35 says, He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. Bottom line here, Lazarus, John Eleazar, he is stressing that he is an eyewitness to this account. He is truly dead, and thereby he is asserting the true humanity of Yeshua, the Messiah. Now, when John wrote this Gospel, Docetism and Gnosticism were beginning to form. I don't think they were full-blown at this time. There's a lot of arguments about when it actually came into being, but I think it was actually the remnants, it was beginning to take place there. And the Docetics, 
denied that Yeshua had taken on human flesh. He wasn't really a man. They taught he only appeared to be a man, some kind of phantom, and therefore, if he wasn't a man, he didn't really die. He only appeared to die. And what's interesting, it was through this group, the Docetics, that Muhammad got his understanding of the Christian faith. And that's why in the Quran, uh, he writes, they did not kill him, neither did they crucify him. It only seemed to be so. So that's the Quran, all right, Surah 4.157, that tells us that's a docetic teaching. He didn't really die. He didn't really, wasn't really crucified. Well, the eyewitness testimony stresses the fact that Yeshua really did die, that he really was a genuine man. And that's what John wants to understand. I'm there. I saw it. I saw the blood come out. I know he was dead. He said that you may believe. Listen, this is why Lazarus writes this book, and we've seen that. John 20, 31. These things are written that you may believe that Yeshua is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing you may have life in His name. The reason He writes is so you'll believe and have life. And so He's saying that you may believe. I'm writing this so you'll understand. You'll believe He really did die. He really was a man, and He really died. Verse 36 says, For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. All right, over and over. Everything that happened was so the Scriptures would be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. Again, I think John wants us to see that Yeshua controls his own death and what's going on after his death to fulfill prophecy. Yeshua, by giving up his life earlier than expected, was spared from having his legs broken. See, if he hadn't given up the Spirit and gone, if he hadn't bowed his head and died willingly, then they would have broke his legs. But Exodus 12 tells us something important about the Passover lamb, of which Yeshua is a type. It says, It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All right? Now, John is probably combining passages here from the Tanakh. Now, listen, this is what you have to understand. The rabbis did this. Biblical writers do this. They take part of a verse here, a part of a verse there, and they put them together. Okay, they're not spoof texting like we do. They're, they, they're, their connections are connected. All right. Well, here he's using Exodus twelve forty six. You know this verse. I, I think there's no doubt there. Numbers nine twelve basically says the same thing. It, they prohibit the breaking of the bones of the Passover lamb. I think he's also probably using Psalm thirty four twenty here that says he keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. All right. Yeshua, who is our Passover lamb, fulfilled this and he died on the cross without his bones being broken. And like I said, this is unusual. In six hours, he's dead. Didn't normally happen. And as I said earlier, when the soldiers saw that he was dead, it just would seem like the right thing to do. You know, if you've been in the military, you do what you're told. That's, you know, the hierarchy. You follow the orders, all right? Eh, maybe not so much today, but that's how military used to be, okay? You followed your orders. You did what you were supposed to do. They didn't break his legs. But see, God sovereignly prevented the soldiers from obeying the orders so that Yeshua would fulfill the Messianic prophecy. So let me ask you, did these soldiers have the free will to break his legs if they wanted to? Ah. Uh, what? What about free will? What about free will? They didn't break his legs because they couldn't break his legs, people. They didn't have free will. We have, listen, we have volition. Boy, I get in trouble every time I talk about this. We have volition. We make choices. God sovereignly is controlling everything that happens, all right? They didn't want to break his legs. Why? Because they couldn't break his legs. <laughs> It's not like they are, I want to break them, and there's something holding the hammer back. That wasn't it. God was ruling over the, high, the hearts and minds of men. Proverbs 21 says, The king's heart's in the hand of the Lord. Like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he will. Well, is that just the king? Obviously, these soldiers are involved here. They couldn't break the legs. They didn't break his legs because they couldn't. Because prophecy said, not a bone will be broken. 
All right, verse 37, and again, now I know that goes against all teaching in churchianity today because we got to have a will. We got to be supreme over God. Who does God think He is that He would be over us? Well, He's God, okay? And like I said, just if you have problems with this, here's what I recommend. Go get Luther's book, Martin Luther, okay? The Bondage of the Will. It's about this thick, Okay? It is, and in it, you know, he goes to lay out that, you know, nobody has a free will. Your will is in bondage to what you believe, to what you think. You know, if you think certain things, you're not going to go contrary to that because the will is in bondage to that. It's a great book and very light reading. All right, verse 37. Again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And we also saw earlier in this study that Yeshua's side was pierced by a soldier. Again, that is to fulfill prophecy. This guy didn't have a choice either. He stuck that spear in there because he was supposed to do that. All right, because Zechariah had said a long time ago, Zechariah 12.10, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now let me ask you something here, believers. Who is said to be pierced in this verse? Who's talking here? I will pour out on the house of David when they look on me. Who's talking? It's Yahweh. They pierced Yahweh? We've been saying through this whole study, Yeshua is Yahweh. Yahweh the Son. And they... That's what the verse is. They pierced him. John uses a single phrase from this verse, but the entire context, again, Remez, we talked about Remez. They, they quote a part of it. They have the whole context in mind. The whole context is, is surrounds the crucifixion. The spirit of grace and of supplication is poured out on the house of David and the inhabitants. And then when you get to chapter 13, 1, it says this, On that day there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanliness. You heard the hymns, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. This is the fountain he's talking about. This is what the blood John saw, okay? That's cleansing them. Isaiah also talked about this piercing in Isaiah 53.5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. Just about, just as the other aspects of our Lord's death were foretold, so was His burial. The whole concept of the suffering servants has its root in the law and the prophets. Though the Jews anticipated a political Messiah rather than a suffering servant, it wasn't because of the failure on the part of the Scriptures to make it clear. They just didn't get it. They had a preconceived notion. They knew what they wanted. And they skipped a lot of Scriptures. And John wants his readers to see that the things which took place on Calvary were the very things that God had prophesied would happen. Exactly. And you know, there had to be some Jews standing there that knew the Scriptures and started putting these things together. Wait a minute, they're not breaking his leg. What did it say about the Lamb? Remember when... Remember when John the Baptist showed up with Christ and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And they start putting these things together and they're like, maybe there's something happening here. People, again, John wants to understand Yahweh is sovereign over the death and burial of His Son. Verse 38, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Yeshua, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Yeshua. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Joseph of Arimathea. The only place you'll ever see anything about him is in the burial story of Christ. All the Gospels mention him only in the burial story. Nobody talks about him anyplace else. He's mentioned nowhere else in the Bible. Mark tells us he was a prominent member of the council. This means he is a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin. The very group that pushed to have Christ put to death. The group that hated Christ. He's a member of the corrupt leadership of Israel. 
He's a member of this group. Most of them were just a bunch of hypocrites. Luke tells us this. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council. He's part of the Sanhedrin. But look what he tells us about him. He's a a good and righteous man. What's he doing on that council? (laughs) What is he doing there? Who had not consented to their decision and action. In other words, he didn't go along with what they were doing. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. Now, Matthew fills in some more details. He didn't consent to their evil plan because he was a disciple of Yeshua. When it was evening, there came a rich man. He's, he's not only on the council, he's a rich person, all right, from Arimathea named Joseph, who also was a disciple of Yeshua. So he's a member of the Sanhedrin. He's a disciple of Yeshua. The Sanhedrin hated Yeshua. How did Joseph get away with being on there without them doing something about it? We read it in the text already. He's a disciple of Yeshua, but secretly. So Matthew and John both tell us he's a disciple. And John adds that he's a secret disciple. Now let me ask you something. How does that fit your theology? Let me me encourage you to do something, people. Form your theology from the Scripture. And when the Scripture doesn't go along with your theology, just change your theology, okay? Because here we have a disciple, but he's not talking about it. He's a secret disciple, okay? That's what the text says. He's a disciple, but it's secretly. Now listen, if you hold to lordship theology which teaches that if you're a Christian, you will act like a Christian, you know, be vocal, be outgoing, you, know, you will honor Christ as Lord, and all you do, okay, that's lordship theology. You know, one of their mantras is, no fruit, no root. What's kind of fruit you think this guy's putting out right now? Huh? Maybe it's little teeny fruit, only the Lord can see it, all right? If you hold to lordship theology, this doesn't fit. You can't be a secret disciple. Those two things just don't go together, right? Well, this is not the case here, all right? Because this man is a disciple, but it's secret. And you know what? He wasn't the only secret disciple. Remember back in John 12? Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him. These are the Jewish leaders. They're believing in Christ. But... For fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it. Again, that doesn't fit a lot of people's theology. But this is what the Bible says, okay? So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. They didn't want to be de-synagogue because the synagogue was everything. If you got put out, you lost your family, you lost your friends, you lost your employment, you lost trading rights with these other people in the synagogue. It cost you everything, people. All right? So they didn't want to be de-synagogue. Why? Well, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. You say, how could a Christian be that way? Do you know any? Huh? Have you ever in your time in your life been maybe a secret disciple? Time when you should have said something and you didn't? These rulers are believing, but they're doing it secretly, and Joseph is one of them. But as we saw earlier, Luke tells us that he's a righteous man. So, he really is a disciple of the Lord, he's just having some problems being vocal about it. So, in him we have a respected man, we have a rich man, a secret follower of Christ, and at the same time a member of the ruling council of the Jews, although he's a good and righteous man, he regularly rubbed shoulders with the enemies of Christ. He listened to them plot to kill him, but he wasn't in on it, the Bible tells us. All the while, he's maintaining a heart for the Lord, living as a believer in the midst of this rotten atmosphere of hatred towards Christ. And at maybe the most difficult moment, as the religious leaders, as his friends, his colleagues are gloating over the success they had and putting Yeshua to death, He gathers up every ounce of courage he has and he goes into Pilate to ask for the body. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Yeshua. Okay, people, that's it. His cover is blown. 
He's no longer a secret disciple. He has now come out and although obscure among the numbers of the followers of Christ, we only have mentioned in the burial story, he will forever be known as the man who took care of the body of Christ and buried it. Now, why Joseph? I mean, why did he have to do this? What, what about the Lord's family? What about the Lord's disciples? Where are the disciples? They're hiding, okay? They're not at the cross. And we talked about that. There's a reason, okay, For you to associate with that person on the cross meant you were probably a colleague, which meant they're a terrorist, you're probably a terrorist and an insurrectionist also. You could get in big trouble just by being there. That's why the ladies are there. And we said Lazarus is there because he's already been dead. He ain't sweating them, all right? He knows someone that can raise him from the dead, so he doesn't care. The job of the burial normally belonged to the family. And members would bury the victim in a public grave of commoners. They wouldn't put them in their own tombs, their own burial plot, because they're criminals. And they would defile your burial plot, so they didn't do that. And there wasn't much fanfare for the burial of the criminal. Like I said, Rome wouldn't even bother burying them. they just leave them on the cross. But the Jews had more respect for the body, and they would take them down, and they would put them in a, a public burial ground for criminals. But the burial of Yeshua, which we'll see in a minute here, is more like a king than a criminal. A number of scholars and expositors find that the Lord's burial was royal in every detail. Leon Morris says this, Jesus may have been crucified in the manner of a criminal, but He was buried in the manner of a king. In His death, Jesus was sovereign. Now, here's something that the NIV Cultural Backgrounds Bible, which I just... This thing is excellent because it brings out the background, the culture. And you've got to understand that if you're going to understand what's going on here. They said this about Joseph here. He says, for a member of the elite, that's Joseph, to request the body, however, was to take a significant risk. Unless acting officially at the behest of the Sanhedrin, he could be associated with Jesus' alleged treason, risking his own execution. So by going in and asking for that body, he's putting himself at risk because he's associating with them. Now watch this. This is cool. Moreover, officials sometimes like to pin such charges specifically on members of the elite so that they could confiscate their property. Wow, government hasn't changed much. (laughs) Has it? See, they like to have to, oh, you're associating with him? You want that body? Now he can take all Joseph's stuff, and he had a lot of it. He says, although Pilate does not act against Joseph, Joseph could not have known that in advance, and his request is courageous. And we got to understand this. He's a secret disciple, but all of a sudden he's willing to step up when the time is right, okay? And he's risking it all in doing this. Now remember back in John 18, 28, how the Jewish leaders wouldn't set foot in Pilate's dwelling so they wouldn't be defiled for the Passover, because it's a Gentile. We can't go into a Gentile home. We'll ruin it. We won't be able to partake of the Passover. Well, here Joseph, a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin, he walks right into Pilate's presence and asks for the body. Not only asks for the body, then him and Nicodemus, both ruling Jews, take down the body. And what happens when you touch a dead body? They can't partake of Passover. All right, They are defiled for a week. When, when Joseph did this, when he went and requested the body, took down this body, buried the body, you know what he did? He lost his religion. He lost it. But when you believe in Christ, you don't need religion. Okay? You don't need it. So Pilate gave him permission. Now, you read John, it sounds like Pilate said, sure, go ahead and take it. Mark fills us in on some more details. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should already be dead. You know, that, I mean, it was a shock. Six hours, the guy's dead already? And in summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Okay, he's dead. Go ahead. You can have him. Granted the corpse. Now, Joseph must have had some clout to go into Pilate and even ask for this. Okay, he had to be pretty high up mucky muck. He had a lot of money, so he probably was up there. You know, Pilate's surprised that Yeshua was already dead, but after checking and making sure, he reluctantly, you know, Let's him take him. Now listen, remember, he didn't want to crucify the Lord. Okay? The Jews put pressure on him. 
So he's like, that's good. Let's give this man a proper burial. You know, he didn't have to do this. He didn't have to give it to him. He could have just said, let's throw him in the commoner's grave. We're not going to give him any kind of burial at all. But he didn't. And Pilate probably granted this because he knew it would irritate the Jews even more to give Christ a proper burial. You know, and they're not getting along real well. So he, uh, he tells Joseph that, go ahead. Now, what we find out next is Joseph wasn't alone in this. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Yeshua by night, I like the way he puts that, you know. He wants us to understand that when Nicodemus came to Christ, he did it at night. Why? Because he was also a secret disciple. He didn't want it known, all right? Came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Now, Joseph of Arimathea is not alone in his efforts to give Christ a proper burial. He's working with Nicodemus, who is another member of the Sanhedrin. Nicodemus is never mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels. The only place you'll meet him is in this Gospel. All right? And the notion of John, uh, Nicodemus, he says he's bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Now, a lot of the other translations here say 100 pounds in weight. What's the discrepancy? Well, none. That was 100 Roman pounds. And the ESV just translates it to us in actual you know, account. It's actually saying, well, this is our weight. It's about 75 pounds. So that's what the, if you see a discrepancy there, it's not really. Just, the ESV is just putting into our terms for us, all right? Now, what this tells us here is that the expense for Christ's burial was quite a bit. In other words, this is a kingly burial rather than a common burial. A simple commoner might be wrapped in inexpensive cloth with a few spices and placed in a tomb, but a king was wrapped in linen wrappings, and then large amounts of spices were used for the burial. For instance, when Herod the Great was buried, Josephus tells us that 500 servants carried spices to the burial. That's a lot of spices, people, okay? Now, the amount of spices Nicodemus brought to the tomb would have required servants to help him in the process. I mean, carrying 75 pounds, that's a lot of spices, all right? So he obviously would have had some servants, and you got a procession going there to do this, all right? So here we have another Jewish leader, Nicodemus, who's become a disciple of Yeshua. And, and who knows when these two men met, or how, what kind of communication they've had with each other. But you remember back, Nicodemus had stood up for Yeshua and said, wait a minute, you know, we shouldn't do this. Well, you know, Joseph's probably there, and he goes, hey, this guy... He, he might be a believer. And so they started having some communication probably. But anyway, we know that they, they did get together and plan out a burial for Yeshua to give him a proper burial. It says, so they took the body of Yeshua and bound it in linen cloths with spices as the burial custom of the Jews. Now, unknown and obscure, though he may have been, Joseph becomes God's instrument in burying his son, which is a prelude to the resurrection. He bound it with linen cloth and spices. Now, this seems to indicate that the application of perfumes to the body was an inclusion of them into the linen cloths that were wrapped around the body. Now, if you read all the Gospels, they make no mention of washing the body of Yeshua. Okay, they talk about, they took them down, they wrapped them, they put spices on them. Shabbat 23.5 notes that in connection with the duties that were overridden on the Sabbath restrictions, you could wash a body. Well, this wasn't the Sabbath anyway, so that really doesn't apply there. Um, Acts 9, we read that Dorcas was washed before she was laid out in the upper room. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in the upper room. Okay, so many commentators say the washing of the body, you know, they would have taken the body down from the cross, they would have washed the body, and then, you know, put the spices and the fragrance on it, and then put it in the tomb. Well, washing the body was a common practice for a Jew who died a natural death. It's not the common practice for a Jew who died violently. And the reason was the blood must accompany the body to the grave. They would never wash off the blood. They wanted the blood to go with them. In Israel today, when you see a terrorist attack and you see the people on the news, these guys with the little orange vest or yellow vest are running around collecting tissue and you know, other things, it's not just so they can do research. They're putting that with the bodies in the grave. They collect these fluids. They're to be buried with the bodies. And it's interesting that the blood-spattered body 
of the image of the crucified man known as the Shroud of Turin. I'm sure you've all heard of that. He hadn't been bathed. The blood was still there. They just covered him with herbs and myrrh and spices and preparation of burial. So I don't think Christ's body was washed. And, and like I said, the Scriptures never say it was. Just many commentators say it was the Jewish custom. Well, they're half right. It was the custom if you died, you know, not of a violent death because the blood was important for them and they had to go with the body. All right, so John's interests here are really not in the manner of burial as much as the honor that Joseph and Nicodemus bestowed on Yeshua by burying him in linen cloth. Now, the ancient Egyptians had an elaborate process of embalming the body for burial. The Egyptians would remove all the organs and stuff the body cavity with spices. That's kind of served to embalm them. Other cultures in that area cremated bodies, but the Jews' practice was different. They used cloth to wrap the body, and they'd spread this fragrant myrrh and powdery alloys in the grave, and they'd also use like a incense to kind of cover up the stink, and that's basically what they did this for. They're not really embalming. They're just trying to make the smell not all that bad, uh, protecting from the odor, all right? Um, and they would do it immediately, like some other cultures would wait before this happened. Um, and again, often they'd burn uh, spices at the grave just to keep the stench out. Now, according to Jewish laws, they could not celebrate the Sabbath, Passover Sabbath, by handling a dead body. So, Joseph and Nicodemus have, you know, this was a big deal to people, the Passover. It, meant, it was a huge deal to Israel. But to them, they're like, it's not that big a deal anymore because this is the Passover lamb who has just died. And so they're not worried about their religion anymore, people. They're realizing they have the Savior. They found the truth. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb, which no one had yet been laid. Many of the modern-day depictions of the tomb show this you know, big kind of doorway, even actually framed out, you know, where they put Christ in. Well, that wasn't what the tombs were like. Then the, the entrances were so small, you would literally have to get down and crawl in there. And we see that later in chapter 20 when Lazarus goes to the tomb and he bends over to look in to see what's going on in there. All right, so a lot of the pictures we see are not quite right. I think you know that. Isaiah 53, nine again says, They made his grave with the wicked. See, when a man was crucified, particularly for sedition, he was not accorded the normal dignity given to other citizens for burial. These criminals were carried out of the city to a common grave without any sense of honor. They lumped them all together for burial. And this is what Isaiah meant when he said, They made his grave with the wicked. Normally, since Yeshua was crucified, he would have been part of the common grave of the wicked criminals, thrown in the grave with the other two that were there. But Isaiah continues this prophecy, listen, some 800 years before Christ, by saying, and with a rich man in his death. What in the world? And guess what happens? A rich man steps forward and puts Christ in his tomb. What a, what a coincidence, huh? The exception to the normal burial of criminals took place at the request of a rich man. Here's Joseph of Arimathea. He asked Pilate for the body. The request was granted, and he put him in his own tomb, fulfilling this prophecy. Only John's Gospel notes that the tomb where Yeshua's body was placed was in a garden. Any significance there? Well, the church fathers have made some mystical connection. They said, you know, the first man sinned in the garden. The last Adam remedied that in a garden was buried. So they connect that that way. Um, Matthew, Luke, and John all observed that this was a new tomb. Never before used for burial. Is this important? Oh, well, they put a bunch of people in them. That's what it means, new tomb. No one's in there. No one's ever been in there. Why is that important? Well, we get to chapter 20. Guess what happens? The tomb is empty. How many people were resurrected? Just one, because it was a new tomb. No one else is in there. That's what he's trying to tell us here, right? Nobody else is in this tomb. He's in there alone. When he's resurrected, it's just one person that's resurrected. That prepares us for chapter 20, all right? As we saw, Matthew tells us that, that Joseph was rich, all right? Not only is Joseph's wealth important for securing the body and providing a place of entombment, but in doing what he did, he fulfilled Scripture that had been written so long ago. Again, everything about this is under the Lord's control. Mark 15, 46 says, And Joseph brought linen shroud, and taking him down, 
wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now, if you've seen the Shroud of Turin, there's a lot of, you know, was this Christ? We don't know. But that was how they were buried. It was one, you know, about a four feet wide piece. It was about 15 feet, and they start the feet and wrap it right over, and then they secure it tight to the body. And so whatever, whoever that was that was crucified, it was very typical of the crucifixion of that day. He says here that they put him in and they rolled a stone against it. Well, in that area, they found archaeological evidence that there's a lot of troughs dug in front of these tombs that put stones that can be rolled there. That kept uh, bandits out. It kept animals from going in and whatever. They said that uh, the people who were more wealthy and buried in, in linen garments, the tomb raiders would go in there and steal the linen off the dead bodies. That's desperate. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Yeshua there. See, it just so happened, another coincidence here, people, that Joseph's tomb was close to the place of execution so they could get it in, get the body in there before the sun went down because that was really important, all right? So the Sabbath wasn't violated. Now, traditionally for us, when someone dies, we have a memorial service. We all gather to show respect, you know, for our friend who has left. We often have eulogies where people will stand up and you know, tell what this person meant to us. Well, here is the Lord of glory, the King of kings. He's buried. There's no memorial service. There's no eulogy. He's wrapped up and stuck in the grave. And that's the end of it. Okay? Took him down, put some spices, put him in there. I think the significance here, people, the burial of Yeshua is the completion of His humiliation. Proverbs 2 talks about he left the glory of heaven to become a man. He, was, he humbled himself. This is the end of, this is the last step of his humiliation. He's just stuck in the grave. It's a king's grave, but no eulogy, no memorial service. Stuck in the grave. And from here on, no more humiliation, now exaltation. Now, what I'd like us to see from this text that we looked at today, and I think what John wants us to see, is that Yeshua was truly flesh and blood. He truly died. The burial served as the certificate of death. You don't bury people that are alive. It served as a public notice that Yeshua of Nazareth was dead. Now for us who are the beneficiaries of this death, it's a public notice that when Yeshua said it's finished, it was finished. It's done. All right. I'd also like you to see that His death fulfilled many prophecies. We've seen that. Amazing how many prophecies. Every detail of biblical prophecy was fulfilled in Christ. You see how the truth of God's Word written over a period of 1,600 years maintains its accuracy to the very detail? The Bible is the Word of the living God. I think prophecy so clearly shouts that. You can trust it. You can count on it. You can find great comfort in it. But you know what? you got to read it. you got to spend time in it. It's not magical. You know, just put it under your pillow and things will be better. No, you've got to spend time in it so you can get to know the Lord of glory. <clears throat> I want to close this morning with a conversation that is said to have occurred between Joseph of Arimathea and Pontius Pilate. It's not recorded anywhere. It's passed down to us orally. They say that Pilate was shocked by Joseph's request for the body, which would have been a shocking thing. And Pilate said, Joseph, I don't understand. You're the richest man in the region. You've made this brand new tomb for your family. Listen, only rich people had tombs and only the very rich had new tombs. So you've made this tomb for your family and you're going to give it to this criminal? To which Joseph responded, it's just for the weekend. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning that it was just for the weekend, Lord that You rose from the dead victorious over the power of Rome, victorious over death, and that because You live, we too live. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us. Oh, Lord, may we learn from this text of Your sovereign control of all events. Lord, thank You for who You are. We love You, Lord. Amen.